You are listening to the podcast of Grace Bible Church Ann Arbor. We are the rescued people of God joining His Great Restoration Project. More information, including sermons in this series, can be found at graceA2.org. Thanks so much for tuning in. It ain't always smooth sailing. On a flight across the Atlantic a couple weeks ago, I had an experience that many of us who've been on planes before have experienced. I was sitting in my seat and staring in sort of a stupor at the screen, occasionally trying to take a nap, when all of a sudden I felt the plane jostle a little bit. Immediately there was a tone that sounded and a light went on, letting us know that we needed to buckle our seatbelts. Now, fortunately, this little sort of bit of, well, turbulence happened very few times. And there were only like once or twice where we got one of those announcements reinforcing the tone and the light saying, all right, you need to get in your seats, buckle up for a little while as we experience some turbulence on the plane. But again, we didn't experience it that often. Sometimes though, turbulence can be a big, big deal. In fact, just the other day, there was a news story about a plane that dropped about 1,500 feet in a very short amount of time to where it was only about 750 feet above the ocean before it sort of pulled out of that big drop and got going. I cannot even fathom what that felt like for those people on the plane. For some of us, particularly if we're a little bit nervous about flying, even thinking about that kind of turbulence can make, well, it can make our palms sweat. Now what I've noticed when I have experienced worse turbulence than this last time was that people have sort of different strategies for coping with the turbulence. There are some people who will sort of sit there and they'll close their eyes and maybe focus on their breathing and you'll see their hands get real tight on the armrests. There's always a person or two who sort of, they sort of shout a little bit or maybe the person starts nervously talking to the person that's next to them. People use all kinds of strategies to try to sort through this sort of sudden change in their environments. One of the strategies that I have used in recent years is that whenever it starts to get very rocky, and I don't just mean a little jostle where, okay, I'll put my seatbelt on, whatever, but I mean where it's starting to feel, my stomach is feeling a little off, I will go ahead and try to look around and find the flight attendants because I wanna see how they're reacting. You know, if, if, if they're not too frightened, I'm not too frightened. See, they've been through this a lot more times than I have. But if I see them like crossing themselves and praying and crying, well, then I'm going to start to get a little bit nervous because I assume they know what turbulence should and should not feel like. I assume that they have had conversations or at least have heard directly from the captain about what's going on. So I try to gauge my reaction off of theirs. If they're cool, calm and collected, well then I don't need to be very afraid even if things feel a little bit scary. But it isn't always smooth sailing. Last week, Pastor Pat dove us back into the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, Corinth was a very important city in the ancient world. It was in Greece, and because of its location, it was sort of this place where many travelers would go. It felt like many people would go to Corinth, but many people weren't necessarily from Corinth. So as a result, the city became quite wealthy. It also became a place that was very diverse in terms of different ideologies and gods and pursuits that all sort of met right there 
in Corinth. In fact, a, a term was coined to Corinthianize, which basically means to throw off the old restraints, to live your life free, pursue wealth, do whatever you want, even in the realm of sexuality, just go for it. That's what it meant to live a Corinthian type life. And yet in that place where everybody was out to make money and drink their wine and worship their God and live and let, and let live, God called to himself a people in that city. A church was born. The Apostle Paul traveled to Corinth and like he normally did, he started off preaching in the synagogue, sharing a bit of his story, showing how the Old Testament prophecies pointed to Jesus, and then calling everyone to repent. And while many people rejected him, there were a number of people that received this message of Christ. There were Jewish people who realized, oh, Jesus is the Messiah. There were Greek people who realized, oh, this God, Jesus, is much better than these Greek gods, which just take and demand and require. This God, Jesus, gave himself for us. And so there were a number of converts who came to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But with this diverse group of converts, in that culture that was dominated by false gods and this pursuit of success and knowledge, this church was born, which is beautiful. But those people brought with them some of their old baggage, some of their old ideas, some of their propensity for idol worship or their propensity to argue with one another and demand that they were always right. There was a real sort of intellectual pride there in that city, and it creeped its way into that church as well. Despite the fact that all those folks were just trying to figure out what it meant to live a faithful life in a confusing world, these church people did not treat each other with charity and respect and love. They argued, they judged, they maybe even canceled one another. Can you imagine that ever happening in a church? And so it was a turbulent world, but it was also turbulent in the church. And there were some gripping their armrests. There were others that were shouting at each other. And fortunately, there were a few who looked to the attendant, if you will, to figure out, wait, what are we supposed to be doing in this particular setting? And so today, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to look at this in three different parts. We're going to look at the attendant, we're going to look at the turbulence, and we are going to look at the real trouble that was going on. Now, in chapters 11 through 14, what we see is that these are all fairly connected to one another. Now, the Corinthian believers had a number of things that they were dealing with in their own personal lives, like in their homes. And the Apostle Paul dealt with some of those things already. But in these chapters, what we see is that the Apostle Paul specifically speaks to problems that were happening in the church worship gatherings. Like when all these believers gathered together for their Sunday church services, there was some turbulence to say the least. And so that's what he does in these chapters. And he sort of works with all these different things like the Lord's Supper or communion, which Pat talked about last week, where people were getting drunk and and a number of other things, which we'll get into here in just a minute. They had problems worse than even trying to navigate a muddy parking lot where there's very few available spaces or sitting in pews with your family members when the room is so full. They had some serious, serious problems. It was a mess. So let's see how the Apostle Paul addresses one of these messes. And so we're going to start with part one. This is from the attendant part one. Now, 
Paul begins this section in chapter 11 by saying essentially, um, this is your pastor speaking, folks. And I have spoken to the captain. Would you please return to your seats, fasten your seatbelts, and center yourselves once again on Jesus. If you aren't sure what to do, if you're becoming confused or frightened, then just, well, look in my general direction and hopefully you'll figure it out. Well, that's not exactly how he said it. The exact way he said it is in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators, mimetai. It's like our word mimic. He says, mimic me. You can know that I am talking to and hearing from Jesus. Everything that I do, whether I'm eating or drinking or whatever I'm doing, I am trying to do it for God's glory. And I won't give up on my faith. My conviction in Christ is secure, and I hang on to that tightly. Now, I will flex if it helps reach this person or that person, but my faith and my core convictions, those I will stick to. So if you are struggling with knowing how to respond in this turbulent time, even in your church services, I will show you the way to do it. I'll show you a better way. So just mimic me. Now, sometimes when we look at this and we hear this verse of the Apostle Paul saying, just mimic me, imitate me. I think we think he's being cocky or something, but I want you to imagine for a moment that you are hiking a brand new trail, one where you have never been before, and you're there with like a group from, let's say, the church. And while you're hiking, all of a sudden, an incredibly dense fog starts to roll its way in. And you start to look around and you become concerned that people are going to misstep or maybe get lost. So let's just imagine that that's where you are on this trail where you've never been, when all of a sudden the person leading the hike stops the group and he says, hey everybody, just so you know, I've hiked this trail many, many times, even at night. I could do this with my eyes closed. Plus, I know that even though we cannot see, we know that Jesus still sees us. And of course, as a group, you're going, oh yes, amen, that sounds good, right? And then imagine that this leader says, so here's what I want you to do. Everybody, just follow Jesus. Do exactly what Jesus says. And then he takes three quick steps into the fog and disappears. Would that have been helpful in that circumstance? You know, you would have thought it would have been way, way better for him to say, listen, I know the way. God is good. Just follow me. I know you can't see all the way out there. I can see a little better than you because I know where we are. Get close to me. Hold my hand. Just don't lose sight of me. Imitate me. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He is giving them a very clear example. He's letting them know that he knows at least a little bit better than they do what way they ought to go. And he says, follow me. I'll show you a better way. He's not being cocky. He's being a good leader. This is what bosses and good pastors and good parents and grandparents and older siblings. This is what we're supposed to do. Not pretend like we can see everything so perfectly clearly, but we can see, at least in certain roles and certain situations, a little bit more clearly than others. And so we are called to say, hey, listen, everybody, if you're confused or you're in a fog, I don't know everything, but I think I can see our next step. So stay close to me and let's go this way. And that's what we see in these next chapters. A number of foggy, challenging situations that the Apostle Paul says, okay, I'm, I'm just gonna show you the better way. Some of the things that he covers here in these next chapters are head coverings 
the Lord's Supper that we talked about last week, spiritual gifts, prophecy. I mean, these are, some of these things are a little bit dicey. In fact, we might just solve our space problems by talking about this stuff over the next few weeks here. But Lord willing, we'll all see Jesus in all that we are doing and saying. The difficulty in preaching on these particular things is that just about every one of these sections has some incredibly challenging interpretive issues. The kind that make doing them justice in 35 or 40 minutes almost impossible. In fact, in order to really grasp what's going on here, it would be very nice to have, well, a working knowledge of Greek, um, a handle on first century Greco-Roman culture, and frankly, a time machine so we could go and see the church itself and understand what the problems were exactly. But let's look at this first section and see if we can figure out what exactly is going on here. This is what it says in chapter 11, starting verse 2. Now, I command you, because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesied with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her hair were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair, to shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for such a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Got it? Did that just make perfect sense to you? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a doozy. I mean, it would be nice to have a uh, handle on all the Greek words and a time machine to understand what exactly was going on here. Because as you look at this text from our perspective, look at all the questions that arise here for us. The Apostle Paul writes about head coverings. Was he referring to a veil or was he talking about having long hair versus short hair? Because he sort of talks about both a head covering and long hair and short hair at one point. Is his primary concern here about worship tradition? Or is it about modesty or authority or gender distinction? When he writes when women prophesy and pray, it makes it seem like they are active participants in a church service. But then if you read chapter 14, he says, I'd say that women need to be silent. So which one is it? Sometimes when the Bible talks about the head of something, the word means authority, but other times it can mean source. So what does it mean in this context, and how does that further the overall argument? 
And if we can sort through what all of these words mean and this setting is about and all that, then how are we supposed to apply this to our churches today? Because very few churches seem to mandate anything related to dress code, much less head coverings. So is this all irrelevant or is there something actually meaningful here? And then towards the end of this, Paul says something about for the sake of the angels. What in the world do angels have to do with anything? There's a few questions, aren't there? Well, sorry to disappoint you, but I can't answer all of those questions for you. And we are not going to chase all of those rabbits. I did actually chase all those rabbits for hours and hours, and it was good. And you should too. You should chase down all of those linguistic issues and sort of con contextual clues and that sort of thing. I think it's, some, it's good stuff to dive into. But my main concern today is that if we hit all of these weeds in depth, we will miss what was going on in that turbulence. And worse, we will miss that there's even something bigger that is causing trouble to the church than just the head coverings. So I do want to talk about this particular turbulence with the head coverings for a few minutes, but I also really want to get a little deeper on what the deeper problem is that's going on. So let's get into part two, the turbulence. In this text, it seems that Paul is encouraging the church to recognize that God as creator created men and women from the very beginning to be created in his image and that he had put, like, he, he had breathed his breath of life into them, and that men and women are wonderful and gifted and complementary to one another and equal and yet distinct from one another, and that those distinctions in some ways matter. Now, this text about church gatherings points out that there are distinctions, and you'll find in other texts where the Apostle Paul talks about uh, households, husbands and wives. He says there are some distinctions in how they operate. And he keeps coming back to this, this garden. And he says, you know, in the garden, it was intended like this for, for you to be equal and, and co-laborers and, and all this and, and complementary. So, so that you're the same in so many ways. And yet there are some unique differences in how you've each been designed. And that's supposed to play out in the home and in the church. Well, in Corinth... It seems that both the men and the women were prophesied during the worship service, and at least in this text, the Apostle Paul doesn't have a problem with that. Again, we'll, we'll discuss chapter 14 a little bit later. But the thing he's addressing here is that men and women are not doing the prophesying and praying in the right way. There's something about the way that they're approaching their prophesying and praying that is causing, well, the turbulence in their church services. And so he encourages the women here to wear head coverings and the men to not wear head coverings. Now, you should dive into whether that you think this is a veil or long hair. There, there's some, some research out there that will help you sort of navigate that. But it seems like his bigger concern with this is that there are some people purposefully going against the cultural sort of setup and norms of that church and the other churches in the area as a way to resist authority in the church and maybe even their marriages. They were going to church to speak, but instead of their prayers and their prophecies lifting up one another and giving glory to God, they were coming in such a way that was drawing attention to themselves and revealing that their hearts are full of pride. Now, every culture is different in terms of 
uh, when it comes to dress, what that communicates about who we are and kind of whether we're trying to show honor and respect and authority and that sort of thing. When we were at the Western Wall in Jerusalem a few weeks ago, there were separate sides for the men to go from the women. And there, the men wore head coverings and the women did not. And that was the way that we were meant and supposed to show respect and honor in that particular culture. And we all did. The men, we put on hats or, or yarmulkes and we went in, in order to pray down there. We wanted to do it in the right way. But there, apparently just this past week, a protester showed up at the Western Wall. It was a woman and she was wearing her underwear and she was making some sort of political statement. And she was almost immediately arrested and taken away as somebody who was trying to provoke the people that were there. In our culture, we would also be provoked by this. Now, we might not think much about head coverings, but I think I've mentioned this before. A man one time walked into our church building. It was midweek, but he walked into our church building shirtless. And I immediately turned and walked him right out of our church building. If it was a Sunday morning and one of our worship leaders wore a shirt that had some sort of rude words on it, I would have a very long and hard chat with them about that. If one of our greeters was like, oh, it's so hot, I'm gonna take my shirt off and stand shirtless at the door as people walk in, I would have a long and hard chat with them. And you might think, well, wait a second, what if they're just hot? What if that shirt with the rude word is just very, very comfy. Can't people wear whatever they want to wear? And the answer is no. Not in a church setting. Not in a place where your goal is to not draw attention to yourself, but to show honor and respect and to draw only attention to who Jesus is. Now, in my case, the very first Sunday I preached at this church, I showed up wearing sneakers and I knew that that was gonna cause some people some frustration. But in that case, I was actually trying to explain to people, this is what the culture of this place is going to look like if you invite me to be part of the authority structure of this church. So that was a little bit of a unique situation. If I'm asked right now to go be a guest preacher somewhere else, which this happens you know, a fair bit, I always say, what's the dress code? Do they want, do you want me to wear like, a jacket or a tie and some lame shoes. Like I am happy to do whatever because my goal is not to show up and everybody look at me. My goal is help people see and understand Christ and hear the gospel. And this is what Paul is talking about with his directives about head covering. He's really challenging their hearts. His argument was that they should dress appropriately for that culture and to show that they are a person under authority. Now beyond that, he goes even farther. And this part, the second part might be a little bit harder for us to understand because he said you need to dress to show that you're under authority. But he also says you need to dress according in some senses to your nature. He went on to say, listen, God created men and women to be different in some ways. So the way that you dress ought to recognize that you were created to be different. If you're a man, that you're created to be different than a woman. If you're a woman, you're created to be different than a man. You should embrace those uniquenesses and appreciate those uniquenesses in one another. So when it comes to clothing or head coverings or hair length or whatever, anybody who's dressing in a way that is purposefully gender ambiguous or confusing is acting inappropriately. 
because in some ways they're blurring the beautiful distinctions that God has created. So for a man to show up to church dressed overtly as a woman, or for a woman to show up to church dressed overtly as a man, that does not bring glory to God. It doesn't encourage the church body. It doesn't celebrate those unique differences. It simply provokes and confuses and draws attention to self. Harry Styles dresses the way he does because Harry Styles wants to bring glory to Harry Styles. Paul's point here is not to dictate to men and women a certain dress code per se, but he's trying to encourage them to dress appropriately and for how God has designed them so that when they show up, they could encourage one another in everything that they do, including in their clothing, that they could bring glory to God, not themselves. It was an incredibly confusing and turbulent culture where sexual promiscuity was rampant and personal freedom was king, and he wanted the church to be a place that was uniquely set apart, that was uniquely set up to be a refuge, a, a holy place, so that when people come to that place, that they wouldn't come there and be confused. They wouldn't see people grandstanding with prophetic utterances, dressing to make waves, trying to be confusing about their gender, elbowing to the front of the communion line and getting drunk. He wanted people to show up and see humble people committed to worshiping Christ. And so, yes, there's turbulence around this issue of head coverings there. But if that was the only issue, like if it was just about a dress code and not something deeper, then I don't think he would have gone on to discuss the Lord's Supper and spiritual gifts and prophecy and all of these other things. It turns out there is something much more significant going on underneath that had the capacity not just to make people uncomfortable for a little while, like a plane that jostles, but to actually be really, really dangerous, which brings us to part three, the real trouble, the real trouble that was going on. It seems that there was something underneath their issues surrounding head coverings, communion, spiritual gifts, and all the other things that were going on. And it was more than just a disagreement about style. As I've been studying this book, there seems to be something underneath that was desperately broken going on there with those folks. It's almost like a person who has a bunch of strange physical symptoms but they don't yet know what the diagnosis is. And then finally, there's like this test. It's like, oh, that's what my issue is. That explains why this, 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 and this are going on. Well, these worship services had issues. There were symptoms there. But underneath, there was a sickness that is as old as humanity. Now, a couple weeks ago, the Grammy Awards uh, show was watched by 12.4 million people, or about 3.7% of the total population of the U.S. Now, when you compare that to like the numbers of the Super Bowl, which were over 100 million viewers, it's not that big of a viewing audience. But the people, the performers at these shows, um, they, they have myriads of followers online. Their songs have millions of listens. And the performances at these shows get viewed time and time and time again. Now, the performance that garnered the most attention and reaction at the last Grammy Awards was by two pop singers, one of whom is named Sam Smith. In 2014, Sam Smith came out as gay. Then in 2017, Sam Smith came out as genderqueer. 
saying, I feel just as much a woman as I am a man. Then in 2019, he announced that he is non-binary and his pronouns are they, them. Now, I just read that off of his Wikipedia page. He attended the show, the Grammys, in a large flowing red dress, and he performed a song with another biological male who had surgery to transition to look like a woman when he was age 16. That singer's now known as Kim Petrus. And together, Sam and Kim sang this pop song, unsurprisingly, called Unholy, that was complete with uh, dancing strippers and like fiery imagery in a cage and like pitchforks and, or, or like a hat with, with horns on it and, and, and the whole works. And they were not like being subtle about the satanic imagery of the song and that they wanted to, to get everybody to uh, uh, sing along to, right? And as they sang the song and performed the song, uh, the crowd cheered and, and all that. And later when they won an award for the best duo performance, uh, as Kim spoke, the crowd erupted with applause, many standing to their feet. It was a performance fit for Corinth, frankly. Now, as you might imagine, there were some strong reactions to it. Uh, many people had to chime in to voice their opinion. There were some that expressed absolute moral outrage. How could they? This is so satanic and moral, all this stuff. And there were some who celebrated this as if this were some sort of groundbreaking moment to shock people with a performance and sing a song with some tired lyrics. I don't know, I don't get that part. There were still others who, who started to just roll their eyes that anybody would even care about what was going on here. Even the Church of Satan uh, chimed in and said that the fire and horns are a bit passe, but the performance was all right. So for whatever that is worth. Now, why do I mention this cultural moment? Do I mention it because this was the moment that shakes up everybody and makes them sick? Well, there may have been some people who felt queasy watching it, but that's not why I mentioned this. Do I mention this because I want to demonize Sam Smith and Kim Petras? Uh, no, not that they would care because I think they're trying to demonize themselves. Um, do I mention it because uh, that, you know, the, the greatest single threat to all of us is Hollywood and the music industry. N no. I mean, I think we need to be real that there are messages and messaging that run counter to God's word and the good news of Christ so that we should be very careful about what we consume. That, that, that's not the reasons why I'm mentioning this moment. I'm mentioning it because there was a real trouble that was illustrated there. It was just like this perfect illustration of what was going on in Corinth, that there's a disease that has gripped our culture. There's a disease underneath all of these issues in Corinth. There's a disease that is constantly trying to infect our hearts and our homes and our church. Now, from the very first pages of the Bible, the enemy, the serpent, went to the very first human beings asking questions. Saying, did God really say? Trying to get people to question God's word. And saying, oh, doesn't that other thing, that, alternate, that alternative, doesn't that look attractive to you? And why would God hold back something pleasurable from you? Don't you want to be more like God? And that's what the enemy did from the very beginning. And from the very beginning, humans bought into that lie. It's fascinating to recognize that the serpent did not show up and say, I want you to get really fascinated by goat heads. 
uh, pitchforks and five pointed stars with circles, as long as they're pointed in a certain direction. He didn't care about that. He wanted to get humans to worship themselves. That, that's been the problem from the very beginning. In fact, worship of self is actually what modern Satanism claims that it is. According to their uh, frequently asked questions page, yeah, I actually did look that up. This is what they say in their words. They don't believe they would say in a literal Satan supernatural being. Here, here's what they say. Our position is to be self-centered with ourselves being the most important person, the God of our subjective universe. So we are sometimes said to worship ourselves. Our current high priest, Gilmore, calls this the step moving from being an atheist to being an i-theist. Now, according to their stated doctrine, they are fundamentally about themselves, the almighty individual. It's not so much Satanism or atheism. It's i-theism. Did you catch that? I-theism. This is what I think was so clearly illustrated by that Grammy performance. And so much underneath the problems that were going on in the Corinthian church, whether it was about head coverings or fighting over their favorite le leaders or living outside of God's sexual standards or suing one another or getting drunk at the Lord's Supper or misusing the spiritual gifts. It was plain old atheism. The sin as old as humanity itself. The deep abiding belief that says, I make the rules. I determine what's right. My emotions are authoritative. My body is for my glory. My identity is something that I choose for myself. And you, you must recognize the almighty me. A professor from Biola wrote a great little article for the Gospel Coalition titled, Self-Worship is the World's Fastest Growing Religion. And in it, he cited some research that had been done in polling through Barna. Check out these stats. 84% of Americans believe that enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. 86% of Americans believe that to enjoy yourself, you must pursue the things you desire most. 91% of Americans affirm this statement. To find yourself, look within yourself. That's, that's a huge percentage of Americans, which means a lot of churchgoers answered those questions that way. Listen, we are not the center of the universe. Our emotions, our attractions, our ideas are not the standard of what is right and wrong. Our claimed identities do not stand apart from who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He is God and we are not. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says, so whatever you whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And yet, as the author of this Gospel Coalition article wrote, in our day, the Westminster Catechism answer has been inverted. The chief end of man is to glorify and enjoy himself. One could even make a case that self-worship is the world's fastest growing religion. They 
had been invaded by atheism. Have we? Have we? First Corinthians chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul was addressing some sort of sexual boundaries or some, some lies that people had begun to believe about their sexuality, he says this, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. There's good news here. There is good news that one came who would live a life of submission and obedience and humility, the life that we should have lived. And that this Jesus would also die the death that we selfishly have earned for ourselves, that we deserve. And yet the good news is that Jesus came so that we would be rescued from, among other things, from ourselves. These foolish little gods who make terrible rules, who can't live up to our own standards, who fail constantly, and whose lives end with a whimper. Christ came to save us from that. We are the worst gods ever. We cannot see our way through the fog. We cannot navigate all the turbulence. We are so weak, we can't save ourselves. And thank God, we don't have to. If you are in Christ, if you have come from believing in yourself as God to recognizing that Christ is the true God, then you are invited into the way and the truth and the life. You have been bought with a price and are being made into something much bigger than you could ever achieve on your own. You are being made into a temple, a place where the Spirit of God dwells, a place that is pure, and holy and forgiven, and that is magnetic, that other people could come and they could meet Jesus there. We, we are called to be a type of refuge where people don't come to this church and they see confusion or distraction or people trying to grandstand and glorify themselves. No, we're a safe haven where people can meet Jesus. And so, they were infected by atheism. Our culture is clearly infected by atheism. The question we're going to have to wrestle with is our we, is our church. And how then can we recognize that and begin to move away from atheism towards who Jesus is? Just a couple quick nudges for you today as you're sort of pondering this text and maybe chasing down those Greek words and Trying to ask yourself, how does this relate to me? Do I have to show up on the head covering the church? No, no. Here's just a couple nudges for us this week to keep moving towards the truth of who Jesus is and who we are not. The first is this. This week, as you get dressed each day, just consider your clothing. What I mean is, I'm not saying there's a certain dress code. I'm not telling you to wear a head covering. What I'm saying is, just take a pause before you put on your shirt and pants or shorts or dress or whatever you're wearing. Just take a pause and somehow, just a brief prayer to say, God, whether I'm eating or drinking or getting dressed, this is ultimately for your glory, not mine. What, what a difference that would make each day if I got dressed and I said, okay, God, this is about your glory, not mine. 
Also, just as an aside, if you're about to walk out of the house and somebody who loves you says, you're walking out of the house like that, don't, don't, don't walk out like that because sometimes they can see a little bit better than you can what you ought to be wearing and what you ought not to be wearing. So that's just as an aside. But for all of us, as we're getting dressed, let's just take a pause and say, all right, God, am I dressing for your glory to show off how good you are or is this just to show off how good I am? That's the first little nudge. The second little nudge is this. This week, take a step toward deeper relationships. Now, listen, you must be in deep relationships with other Christians if you're going to really grow. You, you, you must gather regularly with other believers if you are really going to grow. You must have a group of friends that can point out to you the truth when your little God of self starts to rise up in the game. Be like, dude, not a good look. And help you, challenge you in those ways and encourage you. You need that. We all need that desperately. The best way to spot symptoms and be pushed in the right direction is with other people who love Jesus also. Isolation leads to atheism every time. Isolation will lead to atheism. So do not use past hurts as an excuse for holding people at arm's length. This is the week where you can get in a small group. This is the week where you can actually go to your small group. This is the week where you commit to being part of a church gathering or where you can reach out to those friends and say, hey, let's put a standing date on the calendar. Once a month, we're gonna hang out and have coffee, whatever, and we're just gonna talk about life. Take a step away from yourself toward others because enough of this mini God stuff, we are his temple together this week. Take that step. We live in turbulent times. Well, so did the Corinthians. None of these things that we are seeing or experiencing are altogether new. We have all seen the God of self rise up in one way or another. Thank God for faithful attendance like the Apostle Paul and like many faithful people who have gone before us that can help keep pointing us to who Jesus is and keep us centered on him, our Savior, our King, our good God. Let's pray. Father, I, I know that I'm touching on some stuff here that, frankly, it's not just touchy in the culture. It's touchy right here in me. So, God, help me to, be, to have the strength of your Spirit to be able to stand up when I do have someone who loves me and who's close to me challenge me in some way and point out how myself is getting too big so that I can become centered once again on Jesus, the lover, the perfecter of my soul, my Savior and King and God. Praise in his name. Amen.